Welcome to the podcast, Verses and Visions, Creative Conversations. I'm your host, Cassidy Beck. In this podcast, we will delve into the personal stories of individuals who have achieved success, gaining insights into the experiences that shape their journey and the visions of themselves. I am so excited and a little fanstruck to be welcoming today Heather B. Moore. She is a U.S. Today, best-selling author of more than 131 books. Heather writes primarily historical and hashtag her story fiction about the humanity and heroism of the everyday person. Publishing in a breadth of genres, Heather dives into the hearts and souls of her characters, meshing her love of research with her love of storytelling. Her ancient era historicals and thrillers are written under her pen name, H.B. Moore. She writes historical women's fictions, romance, and inspirational nonfiction. Heather attended Cairo American College in Egypt and Anglican School of Jerusalem in Israel. Despite failing her high school AP English exam, Heather persevered and earned a Bachelor of Science degree from Brigham Young University in something other than English. She has a whole lot of literary honors. The ones that I know about are the 2020 Goodreads Choice Award semifinalist, uh, 2020 Indies finalist, ALA Best New Books, um, September 2020, and six-time Best of State recipient for Best in Literary Arts, and the 2019 Maggie Award winner, and a four-time Whitney Award winner, and a two-time Golden Quill Award winner. It is just my pleasure and honor to welcome you. Thank you so much for being here with us, Heather. Well, thanks for having me. This will be fun to talk to you. So I've been able to have the chance and opportunity to take a couple classes from you. And also, like, just to kind of chat with you, a couple of things that stuck out. I I just can't believe that you failed your AP exam. Like, that is mind-boggling. And I feel like, okay, there's hope. <laughs> Those essays, you know, when they ask you a question and then you have to like do the five paragraph essay, you have to introduce and have a thesis and then three paragraphs and then conclude. Like, I feel like it's so redundant that I'm sure that that attitude came through. (laughs) Maybe it was like a blessing in disguise. Maybe it was just, I was supposed to take a certain path. So yeah, I, I, I totally believe that. I also feel like if someone like you was failing it, I feel like there's something very wrong with the system because I love your writing so much. I love how you weave the story in. You have really turned my attention to historical fiction. I love the way that's educational as well as entertaining. You weave those things really, really well. Um, so I also had made an assumption about you that this is just something that you've been doing for your whole life. But in one of our conversations, you told me that you got into writing a little bit later in your life. So can you walk us through your journey? Sure. I think as a kid, I just loved to read. And mm-hmm. I remember I grew up in Orem and we would go to the Orem library regularly. And I would always check out the max number of books, which is 12. And so I would just take 12 books home and they're due in two weeks and I didn't read them all. But I love just having a huge variety. I remember reading just everything from like thrillers and to historical fiction to just kid books like Nancy Drew and stuff. And I would, and of course the adult books would just go over my head, but love the story form. And when I was in my twenties, we actually lived in California for a while. And then we came back and lived in Utah. And my grandma, who was 85, she said she was ready to have 
her personal history written and that I could help her with it. So I would go to her house once a week and ask her questions. And this just got me like writing where I hadn't really done writing for a long time. I mean, there's some letter writing here and there, but since I was now back in my home state where I had all my relatives around me, I didn't really have to write letters anymore. So I just had a story I did and she, she was a young mom and wife during world war II. And so this story was set in that time frame. And I thought, Oh, I'll just write a short story and I will submit it to like good housekeeping magazine or red book. Back then they had these little fiction novelettes that were in there and getting longer and longer and longer. <laughs> and it ended up being like around 300 pages. And I thought, I think I just wrote a book. Of course, nothing about it was going to survive. It was all going to have to be revised, but it was like the, the process of writing. I hadn't just done it for myself before in that form. And of course, as long as a book would be. And so I thought, well, I don't even know what to do with this. I mean, I didn't even know if I knew what editing was. I wasn't like thinking, oh, I need an editor. I was just like, I need a publisher. <laughs> and so I went to our little library in Lehigh, Utah. It was very similar back then. Now it's been rebuilt and it's beautiful. And I found a book called Publishers Marketplace. And it, it was now, of course, it's online, but it was a giant book, probably, I'd say, 500 pages. And you just look up publishers and what genres and what they're looking for, and you have their addresses. So then I started submitting sample chapters that way. And of course, tons of rejections coming back. This is when I was 30. And so I, I had three little kids. One was a baby. So I'd go to the library and they'd, they'd look at their books and I'd look at my books and everything was just revolved around like books and reading all the time in my family. And I finally found a group of writers I would meet. It's through the League of Utah Writers. And I started going to that group. And it was once a month at the Provo Library. And I found my critique group there. And that's where I really felt like that's when the real work started is being critiqued in a live situation and understanding story structure and characterization and all the things that you do learn when you're at school, but if you're not thinking of, oh, I'm going to write a book someday, or I want to be an author, you're just doing mm -hmm. it as homework. You're not really mm -hmm. investing in it. So that first book was not published, which is wonderful. I wrote another book and I submitted it everywhere. It did get some positive feedback, but they're all rejections, which is the next step in publishing a book is getting positive feedback, even if you still get rejections. And I then was looking at kind of the local market. Some people in my critique group were publishing with local publishers. And I thought, well, maybe I could write a book that's basically specific to market, but I wanted it to still be what I love to do. I wanted it to be historical fiction. So I, I ended up submitting a book that was based on Lehi and Nephi, who are Book of Mormon prophets, to Desert Book. And they turned it down and they said, we will never published Book of Mormon fiction. That was my rejection letter. Mm -hmm. And so then I went to Covenant next and they turned it down and they said, we already have another Book of Mormon series that we're publishing and we don't want it to conflict. Mm -hmm. And my husband was like, you should go in and meet with them. I'm like, what? I'm not going to go meet with them. That's not what authors do. He's like, well, go and tell them about your book and meet with them. And, and so I did. And they ended up going back to committee and changing their minds, which wow. is like, crazy. But this, this was like almost a year process from when I turned it in to when I went and I met with them in person. And then it came out like another nine months later. So the whole book process was basically two and a half years. And anyway, so that was like, 
my first book was finally coming out. And I thought this would be a great series because obviously there's a lot that goes on in, in this journey of this family. And I remember doing book signings and people would say, oh, well, when does the next book come out? And so my book had come out in September. And so now it's like middle of September. I said, oh, it'll come out probably next fall. And I thought I should probably email my publisher and ask them when I need to turn in this manuscript. So I did. And they told me if I want it to come out the next September, so you have like a year in between each book, I need to turn it in December 1st. And I was like, I had like a baby, a five month old. So I had um, my fourth child by then. Wow. And I thought, how do I do this? Because my kids are yeah. basically zero to nine years old. And so I thought, okay, I just need to be really careful about this and figure out a way because this is the opportunity that people just dream of yeah. having a publisher ask for your second book and having a deadline. But when reality sinks in, you're like, this is really hard because the last book, I just was following my muse and hoping and dreaming and the sky was a limit and now it's like a job. <laughs> so but I had, since I was just such a huge reader all the time, I had read a memoir by Mary Higgins Clark, who was a mystery writer who I probably read like almost all her books. And I loved her um, books and her memoir is called Kitchen Privileges. And she talked about how she was widowed as a young mom. She had four children. And so she went back to work full time to support her family, but she had a dream of being a writer. And so she figured out the only time uh, that she could write was from four to seven in the morning. And then to get the kids up, get them off to school, and then she would go to work. So that's, she wrote her first novel from four to seven in the morning. And I thought, well, if she could do it, I can do it. So that's what I did for the next two months because wow. I set my alarm for four o'clock. And now I, I am a morning person, but we have little kids. You're not a morning person. Like there's, <laughs> there's like this gap in your life where you're just like, everything goes out the window. You're just trying to sleep when you can. And yeah. sometimes my baby was up with me, baby Rose. And, but I was able to hit the deadline and it was intimidating because, because it wasn't like I'm writing a book and I hope it gets published. I'm going to take it to a critique group. I'm going to give it to friends and family to read. I'm going to have all this time. Yeah. And I didn't, and I was writing these paragraphs and it was kind of surreal because I'm like, this paragraph actually might be in the finished book and people are going to read this and I'm going to get reviews on this. So I had to kind of just like close off that part of my brain and try not to think about it too much and just focus on the story. Um, and then of course, after that experience, I'm always, always making sure I'm not putting up close to a deadline. I give myself plenty of buffer time. I usually give myself about six months to research and write a book, which sounds fast, but now that I'm full-time writer, it's spending probably five to six hours a day, sometimes more on the book five days a week. So, okay. I have so many questions. I guess my first one is, does 131 books sound right? Yeah, I would say, I would say 25 to 30% of that are shorter stories. So gotcha. like they're an anthology. So it's like a hundred page story in there. So they're not like full 300, 400 page books. Yeah. Yeah. So I am going to um, characterize you as a research queen. I think that's part of why I love your writing is because I can tell how much time and expertise you have put into it. Are you saying six months for historical fiction or that's got to take longer, yeah. right? I would say for, for instance, my book that came out under the Java moon, I mm -hmm. planned six months. So I basically started in February with all my research and in March, April and May, I was writing June, 
I was polishing the middle of June. I was sending out to readers early July. And so it's it's like the whole process of, of research to when it's submission ready. So I also have like a three week period in there at the end where I'm we have readers reading it and then give me feedback. And so I can polish it up before I send it in. So it's not just my draft or second or third read that I'm sending in. So, but when I write like my biblical fiction, so I did write Book of Mormon fiction. I have nine novels set in Book of Mormon era and I have 12 now set in the biblical era and a couple are New Testament. But I, since I started in that and after like the second and third one, there's things that I'm not going to have to find fresh. I still have to look up and remember. So it's about three months. I think it's really impressive how many genres you write in. We've already talked about historical fiction, but I also love your clean romances. I think they're just so good. Is it hard to learn the rules of each genre? Let me well, start it, by how, how yeah. many genres do yeah. you write in? Um, I do write clean romance and I have some contemporary series out there. And I've written, as far as historical romance, I've written like turn of the century a couple of times. I've written Regency, I've written Victorian, and I've written historical Western. And I actually read tons of historical Western as a teenager. I love Louis L'Amour. So that's probably a good question is, is how do you prep? Like when I'm switching genres, well, if it was something I haven't actually written before, I would probably spend like a couple of weeks leading up to it, just listening to audiobooks, not necessarily reading, because I feel like when I listen to audiobooks, it puts me into the world. And it also saves me time with research because I'm exercising or cleaning or driving. So I could always have this book going and it just creates this flavor of the world. When I'm actually writing, I still have to like look up 1940s men's clothing. And then that's when I'm putting in like the details. And I'll also look up 1940s dialogue or whatever, and then make sure I have those in it. And one of the, one of the tricks I use, especially the older, like biblical fiction is I don't use as many contractions. And even though I'm basically using modern language, I stay away from all cliches. Like I wouldn't say, okay, I'd say, all right, instead of, okay, just because all right, sounds a little more traditional. Um, And then with Regency, it kind of does have its own language vocabulary. So if I'm reading a couple of regencies in advance, then it just helps me kind of remember that. So you kind of just immerse yourself. And, and if you watch a show, watch one set in the regency era, and then it's like, oh yeah, I have to remember they wear day dresses versus their ball gowns versus when they receive collars. I, I'm not like an expert. Like I actually on Saturday watched a documentary on Jane Austen. And I was like, there's a lot of stuff I did not know about her. So I'm not really an expert where there's authors that where they just deep dive into that. So you've mentioned a couple of times about your groups that you're part of. And so I feel like you've kind of touched on this. What role of does feedback play in your creative process and how do you handle criticism? That's a really good question. So when I first started out, I was in a critique group and we actually kept that going for 10 years. And so once a week, that's nobody could meet we were meeting and hammering out chapters. And so that was also motivational because I have critique tomorrow. I got to get something written or you might bring a specific chapter because this is the one I need a lot of work on. And everybody in the group was super professional, super helpful. And they would also do their own homework on genre. Um, And so me, that just taught me how important critiquing is because they would ask me questions and say, well, Heather, we don't even know where we are. What's the setting? They're in the middle of the desert. Well, show us they're in the middle of the desert. And so there's things that are in my head that don't get to the paper. 
sometimes I finish a whole book, but obviously the critiquing is going really slow because they're just meeting once a week. And so I would maybe swap manuscripts with some of the critique group members. My network was expanding. For instance, when I turn in a, this is a World War II novel on a female aviator. And I turned it in last September and it'll come out this coming September. It's called Lady Flyer. So I had pilots read it because I wanted to make sure I had the flying scenes right. And I had a couple author friends that happened to be, we also swap manuscripts because that can be very time consuming. So I can't just say, hey, can you do me a favor? I wanted to be able to return it. And, and they were very good at the story creation and characterization. And I have an agent now. And so she will read depending on um, which one she contracts with. And she also was an editor for like 20 years before she came, became an agent. So I'm always a little bit nervous when I send it to her, but she's like my last person after it's gone through multiple reads. She can really just find like the broader stuff that maybe hasn't been cleaned up yet. It's easy to look at your success and think that you never doubt yourself ever, <laughs> but have you ever experienced imposter syndrome? Well, I wouldn't really say imposter syndrome in the way that it's clinically defined because I know I'm not the best. I'm not a literary writer and I, I'm okay reading literary fiction, but I really just like genre fiction. And so I feel like I could spend three years on this book and agonize over every sentence and make beautiful metaphor for a beautiful description and have all of these little red herrings go through and then play up at the end. Or I could write this book in three months and still have like same sense of accomplishment. Like my books are my books. And and I do get reviews that say, oh, this was just kind of a simple, plain writing. writing, And that's how I write. I write simple and plain. And actually, it's usually like my third draft when I'll um, try and high frequency words like heart or she could or he could or whatever. And I'll go and I'll try to get rid of a bunch of them or maybe revise a little bit, try to reword something. But I do think one of my things I do kind of struggle with is letting a negative review have more power than positive reviews on my psyche. There might be a book I'm super proud of. And I did spend a lot of extra time in, in the rewrites, crafting some of the sentences and making the descriptions more unique. And some will say, I love that book and you're such a great writer. And for whatever reason, I don't like internalize that. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, you must not read a lot or maybe <laughs> listen to an audio and the narrator just made it sound amazing because the narration just makes you just get lost in it. I um, always have that little argument of voice in my head because it, it's hard to separate yourself from your writing and look at it objectively, which is why editors are so important. So I, I guess maybe I just feel like I'm not trying to be the greatest writer. I'm just writing a story and I'm not trying to match up. So I don't feel, I don't feel like a fraud. I don't feel like an imposter, but I do have trouble believing other people when they say they, oh, your book was amazing. I think, well, it was good. But not amazing. <laughs> like that this is voice shocking to arguing. me because I consider myself pretty well read. And uh, I, I think you are a phenomenal author. If you could go back and give your 18-year-old self a piece of advice, what would you say? It's a good question. I have to try to remember where I was. But I would just say, I'd say get a job where you don't have to get on a bus. So I went to BYU in Provo and I worked up in Salt Lake City and I didn't have a uh, car and I was taking oh. multiple buses like three times a week and it was cutting into my school time. I was working at Weinstock's, which is a clothing store, because I was so set on I needed to get experience, but I could have gotten a job somewhere else and just as good of experience. I, I pushed myself really hard 
And it is hard for me to enjoy downtime because I feel my to-do list is this long. And in my older age, I've gotten better at that. My kids are older. My youngest is 19. So I'm not like driving carpool. I'm not doing all those things that young moms do. And so theoretically I have more time, but then I feel like I'm still pushing myself. And so I tell myself, you write your 2000 words a day and then you're done with writing, you know, or if you have something to edit, that is your work time. That's your writing time. Don't write and then edit because then the day still just gets longer and longer. I'm pretty good about seven or eight at night. Just everything's off. Everything's done. And even check my phone, unless it's one of my kids and it's learning to shut things down and enjoy it. And it's okay. It doesn't all have to be done right now. It can still be done tomorrow. So is that a goal that you have for yourself to do 2000 words a day or editing? Yeah. In general, whenever I'm going to start a new book and working on research, and then when I get to the first day writing, I just do 2000 words, 10,000 words a week is what I try to shoot for. And I track my word count too, because that helps me to see it visually. Mm-hmm. And so I take two days off a week and usually it's Sunday. And then we had my grandson one of the days. So that's my day off. Yeah. So it, it adds up because sometimes 2000 words go really fast. And sometimes I feel like it takes me all day to do it. Like sometimes yeah. my brain is just not there. It's not willing to focus. But if I tell myself and like all these tricks and talking myself, just write it. You can always change it later. Yeah. And even if this scene feels boring, basically this one word at a time is coming out. You're like, oh, just get down a sentence. And you have to give yourself grace too. I mean, there's sometimes, in fact, this past week is I didn't check. I think I maybe got seven to 8,000. I didn't get the full 10,000. And I just said, just let it go. It's okay. Don't, and don't make it up. That's the thing is don't make it up unless you're at like a little writer retreat. You can, you can do those sprints better. Yeah, that's awesome. So I feel like there's a couple things you said that have really resonated with me. And I feel like it's kind of our shared experience. So I actually started writing, doing my dad's memoirs. And it sounds like that's kind of where you you started Mm -hmm. as well. And I also was living in Provo and working downtown Salt Lake. That commute was brutal for me. So that didn't last long. And also just even this morning, as, as I was thinking about imposter syndrome, I was doing yoga and there was like this pose I was trying to do. What I was trying to attempt to do was not what it was supposed to do. And, you know, I yeah. was listening to just a really wonderful teacher that was saying, take the thing you think is supposed to happen, take that out and just be happy that you're here and present today. And mm-hmm. I feel like I hear you saying that too, even though you had that 10,000 word count per week, which is a lot of words. That's a whole lot of them. Even if you wrote 7,000, you still wrote 7,000. That's amazing. And that should be something to be celebrated. Tell me the three most influential people in your life. Well, obviously my parents, even though that might sound cliche, they still will read some of my stuff, especially my dad, when I write biblical stuff, because he's a biblical scholar. And he also is a writer. He does more than nonfiction, heavy duty doctrinal stuff but and my mom is just this huge reader and she still reads and we still swap books in fact I'll buy her books for her birthday so I can borrow them back and I say both my grandmas but my grandma that lived when she was 93 she was the one I was helping with her personal history and she was always giving me books too and we both read at home Mitford series we'd pass those books back and forth and she would give me Victoria Holt books and she'd rip off the cover because Even though the books are not steamy at all, the the couple on the cover would be very amorous. 
And so she didn't like that. So she would just rip off the cover and then read it and then give it to me. (laughs) So I say those three would probably starters. And of course I can name hundred more if I. Each of your books are so different and unique. How do you approach this creative process? Yeah, that's a good question because every book has a little bit of a different voice. Sometimes a story I do will have a really strong voice and I feel like it's almost a mood for the book. And that can also be added to a playlist. So when I was writing the book, The Paper Daughters of Chinatown, I put together this playlist of songs and it was kind of growing. I'd hear a song and like, oh, I want to put that on the playlist. So it wasn't like I created it fully in advance. Every time I sit down to write, I'd put that playlist on and immediately I felt like I was, I was in San Francisco on 1895. It wasn't like they were 1895 songs at all. It was just the mood and the lyrics and the voice of the singers. It just put me right in there. When I sit down to write, to read what I wrote the day before, because it gets you back in that voice, into that world, into the flow of things. Um, it can be a little tricky if I'm working on a book and I have an edit that comes in and the edit has a deadline. I usually have to take a break from writing to fully immerse myself on the edit because it's going to be a different voice and different points of view. Characterization is a little bit tricky. I've taught classes on them. I've taken classes on them. The best way to explain it is you're kind of immersing yourself in that world and you're trying to put yourself in the character's shoes and you think, are they sassy? Are they mellow? Are they stubborn? How do they talk and react to situations? Just like an actor taking on a a film role or performing in theater, you have to try to see the world through their eyes and react. And that's what your character is doing as well. I remember you said after writing the Paper Daughters of Chinatown, Mm -hmm. how like you needed to take a break because that subject matter is tough. And I feel like immersing yourself in that world would have been hard. Yeah, it is very hard. And it's interesting because you think on one level, you just listen to a news story of abuse. You just think, oh, that's horrible. But then they'll see on my news app, the headline. I'm like, don't click on it. Don't click on it. And if I do click on it and I read it, I just feel like for the next hour or two, I just feel that weight, that darkness. And so when I was researching this book, it's about human trafficking of young Chinese girls, late 1800s, early 1900s, into San Francisco, Chinatown. And so I was doing all this research, but I was writing this book for Shadow Mountain, which is an imprint of Desert Book. The readership of that target market is more of an uplifting books. They want the real and serious books, but they don't want the dark and graphic stuff. And not that I want to read it or write it either, but I was trying to think, how do I write this story and honor these experiences, but yet make this story. You can come away feeling uplifted and feel motivated and think I can make a difference. These people fought for survival and made a difference on other people's lives. So I found that one of the hard things is writing can be so solitary. And I wasn't in a critique group at the time. I hadn't written for Shadow Mountain before. And it wasn't like I could say, to my husband or to my friend or even email my editor and say, Hey, you know, I just read this terrible thing and I'm trying to know how to write it. It would be so out of context. So I really just had to keep myself immersed in everything. And I found that I have to have my word count done by like one or two o'clock every day, because it takes me a few hours to kind of come down from that and to feel like it's not in my head anymore. And I could just be a normal Heather. I try to just structure my writing time between eight and two every day. And that way it wouldn't affect the rest of the evening stuff with my family and everything. Hats off to people that, that deal with this child protective services or first responders and 
I just think that would just be very hard. You masterfully handled it. And I think their stories needed to be told. And I think that you did it in a way that was, we weren't making camp in the dark. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's not a place that we were trying to reside. But I also feel like hearing the challenges that they faced and the things that they were able to overcome was very inspirational. So we're going to get into some rapid fire questions. Do you prefer to read physical book or audio book? The last few years, it's been audiobook because you can do more than one thing. But mm-hmm. when I'm researching, I'm actually going to be starting a new book or researching in about a week. And so I bought six books and some of them I'm going to buy an audio too, because I want to be able to listen. And then I'm also going to be reading the book and make, marking the book up, which is hard to do, but I still do it. What's the last book you read? So I just finished Becoming Mrs. Lewis, which is about C.S. Lewis's wife. Oh, and I just started oh. the women day by Kristen Hanna. What's your favorite piece of artwork in your home? I have some cool stuff. I have this huge framed timeline. It's a Book of Mormon timeline, but it also has a timeline that shows what was happening throughout the rest of the world during oh. these different events. And I have a Monet poster. Oh, I, I like That's... Monet too. So. Yeah. Do you have a favorite band? I just sort of just jump all over. I have a Spotify playlist. I do custom to the book. When I was writing about Queen Victoria and her daughter, Princess Louise, mm-hmm. I found what their favorite songs were. And I put this playlist together. So oh. a lot of classical like Schubert. And I found the songs that were done at her wedding. As I was oh. writing her wedding scenes, I was listening to her wedding songs. I tried to do that with my Lady Friar book. I created a playlist with late thirties and early forties songs. And I just cannot write to those. So I actually wrote that book in silence. (laughs) Not a country music fan. My husband is, so we always kind of butted heads on it. And in 2020, when you can't go anywhere, I got on this huge country music, like the more mellow songs, Mm. not the old ones where they talk about standing by your man. (laughs) And he's cheating on you. I'm like, no, I do not like that song. We're five o'clock somewhere. So there's some I obviously don't like, but there's some I really like. So I created this playlist and I wrote some rodeo sports romance books, but I keep using that playlist over and over. So that is so funny. I do not like country and my husband is very into country. So I can totally relate to that. Yeah. So Heather, thank you so much. I really appreciate your insight. It has been such a wonderful conversation. I feel like I could talk to you much longer, but... (laughs) Well, thank Um, you so much. I appreciate you inviting me. This is Cassidy Beck signing off for today, reminding you to embrace the art of self-refinement. Until next time, keep crafting your masterpiece.